Well, good morning, y'all. It's good to be back with you. Um, as Scott said, I am uh, continuing in the marathon series uh, where we're giving an overview of the Bible um, as we've been delving a little deeper into its pages um, as a way to really try to build a belief system that is consistent with what the Bible teaches, because a lot of us haven't done that, because the Bible is, um, as we've decided, is our source of truth. And so we've been working through the Old Testament for the past uh, several weeks, and we, we really haven't even made it out of the first five books of the Bible. And um, just by way of review, because there's a couple points that I want to hit, because it's important what I'm doing today. So uh, Greg talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the significance of Abraham in the Old Testament. And this really becomes the thesis statement for the entire rest of the Old Testament because God makes Abraham two promises. He says, your descendants will be as many as uh, the stars and I will give your descendants a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, which has the idea that um, it's rich agricultural land. And uh, so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob's name, this is very important because Jacob's name is changed by God to Israel. Right? It's a familiar name, right? So Israel has a lot of kids, but in the midst of that, he has 12 sons. And the children of those particular 12 sons become what is known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this is the roots of the nation of Israel as we still know it today. And so last week we ended up with Moses who has been leading the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the 12 tribes of Israel. He's leading them all into the promised land. So it's such a sobering story. I just kind of wanted to begin this morning with how Moses' life came to an end. Because it's very dramatic, but it also gets to the heart of what we're teaching here in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it says this. So Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. And there the Lord showed him the whole of the land that was promised. So just imagine Moses is standing up on a mountain and God is saying, this land that you're looking upon, this is the promised land that you've been trying to achieve for so many years. And then the Lord said to him, this is the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Can you imagine just how frustrating that is? That he's led these people to the edge of the promised land, but God is not letting him in. And Moses the servant of the Lord, died there on Moab, as the Lord had said. And he, God himself, buried Moses in Moab. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. I'm 50 and I can't see a thing. Oh, that we could all go out like Moses. But uh, this is really significant because 
um, this really gets to the heart of what the Old Testament is all about. It's all about this promise that God makes to Abraham that he is going to provide for his people this promised land. And in this moment, even though Moses is looking upon it and not able to enter it, God is fulfilling this promise that the, the descendants of Abraham will receive this land that looks so beautiful. And so my job this morning is a very simple task. This morning, I will give you a summary of the remaining 34 books of the Old Testament (laughs) in 20 minutes. Don't time me. Might be 22, 23, no complaining afterward. Uh, It's a heavy lift, but I think we can get through it. All right, so Deuteronomy comes to an end. We get into the next section of the Bible which is known as the books of history. So from Joshua to Esther, it is an account of the history of the people of Israel from the time just after Moses dies to where Joshua and Caleb now are seen leading the people of Israel, crossing the Jordan, which was the event that happens when the Israelites cross over into the Promised Land. Joshua takes over from Moses, and he leads them. He orders the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and I'm bringing that out because um, we'll see that again. The Ark of the Covenant was created to um, hold the, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. And so when they did, the waters of the Jordan split in two, and they entered, uh, they crossed the Jordan and into the very land that God promised that to Abraham. This is the climax of the Old Testament, right? This is the big moment as the children of Israel finally are able to take claim to this land that's been promised to them for so long after they've been wandering around in the desert and doing all kinds of crazy things. So when this happens, the land, the promised land, is then distributed among the 12 tribes. And each tribe gets their own little territory And in an effort to set up their own little new civilizations, they have to create some type of a justice system, right? And so they appoint judges. And these judges are there to keep the law. The most famous judges were Samson, of long hair fame, Deborah, and Gideon. So they helped keep order and accountability. But it didn't take long before the people of Israel began to look around and they saw that all the other countries had a king ruling them. So it was a king form of leadership, and so they decided if everybody else is doing it, we want one of those. We want a king. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they asked Samuel, who was the religious leader at the time, to appoint the king, and in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, it gives the accounts of the rise and fall of these kings. Of course, the story that we may remember was about Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was right there and leading up until he hits the Philistines. And you may remember that uh, little David got King Saul out of a real pickle uh, when uh, Goliath came out and was going to annihilate all the troops. And so David comes and kills the giant Goliath with his little sling, right? Remember that story? So David, of course, then eventually becomes the most famous of all kings of Israel. And he has a son named Solomon. And other than the book of 
Job, David and Solomon write the next section of the Bible. It's like the Bible takes almost a a break from all the crazy history of Israel, and it has these beautiful books all of a sudden that emerge, books of poetry and wisdom. And this is made up of books like the Psalms that contain the beautiful poem, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's like a little respite right in the middle of the Old Testament with all of this beauty. It was Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and and the Song of Solomon, which, by the way, I highly recommend reading with your spouse over a romantic candlelit dinner and a bottle of wine. And when you read it, you'll see why. The night will get better as you go. Uh, So, after King David dies, his son Solomon becomes king. And he's famous for a lot of reasons, right? He was the wise king. He was the rich king. But he is the king that builds the first temple in Jerusalem. So I want to read from you from 2 Chronicles chapter 5 when it talks about the grand opening of the temple. And I'd really encourage you to read those few chapters before Chronicles uh, 1 through 4 because 2 Chronicles 1 through 4 because it describes the ornate nature of this temple which really sounds like heaven itself. I mean it sounds like the most amazing place. But anyway, 2 Chronicles 5 it says, "When all the work that Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, the priests then brought the ark of the covenant." So the same ark in the covenant, that ark of the covenant that crossed the Jordan is has been saved for all these years. And it was brought into the inner sanctuary of the, table, of the temple, the most holy place. And there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of Moses that had been preserved for hundreds of years, still in this ark of the covenant. And then everyone joined in unison, giving praise. This is the grand opening of the temple, right? Giving praise to the Lord and singers raised their voices and sang, The Lord is good, his love endures forever. So if you ever wonder why we have this little worship section at the beginning of our church services, this has been going on for 3,000 years. I mean, it's a tradition that is 3,000 years long where we come together and we sing the praises of God. And while the, you know, we might have some new worship songs and it might change the tune, the same message is there, that the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Well, then the temple of the Lord was filled with this cloud. And historically throughout the Old Testament, after the fall of man, God showed his presence, was able to reveal his presence to the people by being in the form of a cloud. So the the temple was filled with this cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. I mean, what a beautiful moment, right? That God's presence is there among the people that he loves so much. This was an incredible moment moment in time in the Old Testament. So life was good for the Israelites for a while, but things take a turn because when King Solomon dies, it gets a bit ugly. There's a little bit of a rivalry that happens. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is the heir apparent to take over as king, but There were ten tribes of the twelve who were led by a military general named Jeroboam. And so they don't like Rehoboam, and so they rebel. And a civil war breaks out in Israel. And it divides the kingdom into two, the north and the south. 
The northern kingdom was referred to as Israel, led by Jeroboam. And it's very well illustrated here. You can see how beautiful that is. And the southern is Judah. Um, and it was uh, led by Rehoboam. And so the two were kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. They were related somehow through blood, separate families, but none of them got along and they fought like cats and dogs. Which brings us to this last interesting group of books of the Old Testament known as the prophets. The prophets come on the scene because... It's about to get pretty chaotic. And so they become the mouthpiece of God. And they took a bullet for God, so to speak, in that they were to deliver the message of God to the people. The problem was that the people really didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear what God had to say. I mean, listen to the words of Isaiah in chapter 30, where it says, Israel has become a rebellious people, unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction." They say to the prophets, stop telling us what is right. Tell us pleasant things instead. They say to my prophets, shut up. We don't want any more of your reports. Or they say, don't confront us with the truth. Forget all this doom and gloom that you preach. We want to hear good things. We've heard more than enough about your God. And so there's this shift that occurs in the people of Israel. And we enter into an era where the people begin turning away from God and wanting to do their own thing. But what they don't know is that because they are rejecting God, because they are pushing God out of their lives, it will not end well for them. So here's a uh, bit of advice for you. If you ever find yourself having to give a historical summary of the Old Testament on a Sunday morning... Throw in a bit of Pink Floyd to just kind of mix it up a little bit, and then it'll all be good, all right? <laughs> Thanks, y'all. That was awesome. Uh, so uh, the prophets uh, lived during the time of what we're going to call the divided kingdom. The north and south was divided. And their job was to bring... Uh, God's message to a rebellious people who had turned away from God. So there are 17 books, the last books of the Bible, there are 17 books of prophecy, and they're divided into two categories, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And so the five books that are referred to as the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The other 12 books that are referred to as the minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, now these um, designations of major and minor, it's kind of funny to me a little bit because it doesn't speak to their level of importance. It, It actually refers to how long each book is. So while the minor prophets are very quick, and to the point, so for instance, uh, Obadiah, his, his writing co- is compressed into just one small sheet of paper. The prophet Isaiah, however, a major prophet, um, his scroll stretches out for more than 24 feet. So maybe the major prophets we could just call the long-winded prophets, right? In contemporary context, I would be referred to as a minor prophet, while maybe Greg would be referred to as uh, a major So, 
Again, a prophet was somebody who was uh, recruited by God and they literally became the mediator between God and his people. And so you had prophets like Jonah and Hosea and Amos who were prophets to the north and the prophets like Isaiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah who were prophets uh, to the south. But being a prophet, I just have to tell you, was not an easy job. Let's just say that they weren't the person that everybody was trying to hang out with at the party. Um, No one, no prophet really wanted the job, save one. It seems like Isaiah was like all in. You know, we have this passage of scripture that says, when God asked the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah was crazy enough to say, here am I, send me. Other than him, there is no other prophet who wanted the job of being a prophet. Everybody like whined and complained that this was a fate worse than death, that they were appointed to be a prophet. Jonah, for instance, would rather be swallowed by a whale than go and preach to the people of Nineveh, right? as, as God instructed him to do. So the job of the prophet was not an easy one. So just so that we can have a context of what these uh, prophetic books are all about, these 17 books, I'm just going to run you really quickly through the role of a prophet. And there was three. The first role of the prophet was that they were to advise leaders. So the kings of that day realized the importance of getting God's approval before they took some action. I mean, for instance, if you're going to go to war, you're going to declare war on somebody. You want to make sure that God's got your back, right? And so they consult with the prophets about this. The problem was that these kings didn't really like what God had to say because God didn't always agree with them. And the kings wanted to do what they wanted to do. They were building their own ego. And so there was this kind of love-hate relationship between kings and the prophets. And many prophets were routinely put to death by kings who didn't like what they had to say. And so, for instance, while the Bible doesn't say how Isaiah died, tradition holds that he was actually sawn in half by the evil king Manasseh because he didn't like what this prophet was telling him because it disagreed with what he wanted to do. So advising kings and leaders was a big job, big role of the prophet. Second was uh, to prophesy about what was to come. And there were the uh, short-term prophecies and there were the long-term prophecies. The short term in predicting the future in that day had a real purpose, uh, which was to give the prophet credibility and to show that the words that he was speaking was actually not his words, but God's words. And so when they predicted the future, and it actually comes true, the people would know, this man is a man of God. He was sent by God, so you better listen to what this guy has to say. And then there was the long-term prophecies, the prophecies that would be fulfilled long after their own lifetimes. And Isaiah is probably the most famous of these types of prophecies because he prophesied more about Jesus than in any other part of the Old Testament. One of the cool things about uh, the book of Isaiah is that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the scroll of Isaiah was found in perfect condition and matched word for word what we find in our Bibles, which is beautiful. So let's look at an example. In Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah prophesies, and he says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 
So he prophesies that a virgin will give birth and that child will be called Emmanuel. Sound familiar at all? Yeah, I mean, so just keep in mind that this was written some five to seven hundred years before the time of Christ. And I'm not sure that Isaiah had any idea what he was even talking about, other than the fact that he believed that there was this big promise that was coming from God about this future Messiah that would one day come and save his people. So let's compare that passage from Isaiah to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew says, She will give, being Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So at least 500 years before it happens, Isaiah accurately predicts the birth of Jesus. Let's look at one more. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah speaks of a person who will come, and he describes him as a man of sorrows. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, that's a pretty clear prediction of the death of Christ. But here's the part that blows me away. In verse 7, where it says he was oppressed and afflicted, but he says, yet he did not open his mouth. Listen to the fulfillment of this prophecy in the Gospel of Matthew. Hundreds of years later, chapter 27, it says... When Jesus was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. The thing that amazes me about this prophecy is the particular level of detail that Isaiah gives as to exactly how Jesus would respond to that situation. And did I mention this was like 500 years before then? No matter how badly Jesus was beaten, no matter what he was accused of, Isaiah predicted correctly that Jesus would remain silent and give no defense to allow himself to be killed on the cross for our sin. There are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, and every single one of them has come true. So for me, as a skeptic, like this really strengthens my faith and confirms for me that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God. For all you skeptics out there, and you say, oh, this is just a big conspiracy, you just have to remember that these books were written hundreds of years before, and to coordinate all of this level of detail would be immense. And impractical. The third level of uh, the third role of a uh, prophet was to enact change in people's lives. So the prophets worked hard at getting people to change their sinful ways and turn to God. We don't like to hear it 
when people tell us we're wrong, right? Even when we're wrong, we don't like to hear people tell us we're wrong. That's just who we are. And so that's exactly what the prophets did. They had a very difficult job. And the prophet's life was always in danger because people just hated them. They hated them. But isn't it funny when you think about it that the people who were trying to get rid of the prophets, what they're really doing is trying to get rid of God. Right? So, it is in this context of the prophets that um, it does not go well for the Israelites. Because they ignore the warning of the prophets time and time again. And in spite of the attempts of prophets like Elijah and Elisha, warning people about you know, the doom and gloom, as they say, Israel is about to meet its demise. And it's a very sad story. In 722 B.C., Assyria, who's a neighboring country, comes in and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. And in essence, wipes out ten of the twelve tribes just like that. Leaving only the southern kingdom of Judah. Most of the Israelites are deported from their homeland and scattered throughout Assyria. And so the prophets of what we call the Assyrian period are Jonah, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, and Nahum. Now, don't think that the southern kingdom got let off the hook and that they were all that. right? Because even though they saw their brothers and sisters in the north disobey God and get taken down, they continued to reject God in spite of it. And so finally what happens is Babylon, under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, comes in and wipes out now not only Assyria, but they also conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and destroys the sacred city of Jerusalem as well as the temple. So the interesting thing about Nebuchadnezzar was he took the best and the brightest young men and women of Israel and imported them up into Babylon. And so it's here that we have stories like Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It's all here where they're trying to prove who God is and their faithfulness to God in spite of Babylonian rule. And so the prophets of the Babylonian period were Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, Obadiah, and Daniel. So this is just a crazy time, right? Everybody's like conquering everybody, and just when you think it's safe, you know, somebody conquers somebody else. Until finally, the Persians show up and they conquer everybody. They take out the Babylonians and all of their land in 538 BC. So this is really important because King Cyrus of the Persians, he makes a very important decree. Because for the first time in a long time, he allows the Israelites to go back home. He allows them all to go back to their homeland to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so the last prophets of the Bible, prophets of the Persian period, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And now we know, and just as a little aside, we know that all of the Israelites didn't return home because the story of Esther actually takes place in Persia while they're still in exile in Persia. And that's the story of a very unassuming Jewish girl who becomes queen of Persia. 
And she saves all of the Jews because King Xerxes has a plan to wipe them all out, to create genocide. And um, instead, he listens to his queen and she saves everybody. So here's the important thing about this, right? So if we're going to summarize this, we have this idea that throughout the entire Old Testament, it's the history of the people of Israel that, you know, these people were promised this beautiful land. They could have lived there. It's almost like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But, you know, they get this promised land and they screw it up. And they screw it up over and over and over and over again. But one of the important things to look at from a historical context, in, in, and we'll talk about this more next week, but the Israelites are no longer a people who are concentrated in the promised land. They are scattered throughout the entire ancient world. They're building families all over the world. And what this is doing is setting the stage for the message of Jesus to be spread all across the world when the time comes. The last we hear of Israel in the Old Testament is the final book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And once again, this prophet sits there and pleads with his people, please, come back to God. Don't turn away. Be faithful. Can you predict what happens? They turn their backs on God once again. They reject him. And God goes silent for hundreds and hundreds of years. This really is the story of the Bible. And it's repeated over and over and over again. God remains faithful and he loves us and he wants us to walk with him from Genesis to Revelation. But we continue to turn our backs. We continue to walk away from God for no good reason. Some 3,000 years later, we still repeat the same patterns of our people from 3,000 years ago. We turn our backs to God and we walk away. We may not go out and, and worship some idol, but we sure as heck put a lot of other things before our relationship with God. Same questions that were asked thousands of years ago are the same questions we still ask today. Has God forgotten me? Does he hear me? Does God really care? And I love God's response to this question when Isaiah throws his hands to the sky and he asks, God, have you forgotten about me? I'm the only one who volunteered. I've given my life for you. Have you forgotten me? And God's reply is beautiful when he says, can a mother ever forget her baby when she's feeding? God says, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. The message of the Old Testament is tough and violent and harsh and beautiful and forgiving all at the same time. God pleads for our repentance. From, he shouts from the heavens. Don't walk away. Don't turn your back. Don't lose hope. Because I, your God, have not left you. And I never will. 
I hope that we can learn from the lessons of the ancient ones and understand that that is a pattern that duplicates itself in our lives time and time again, and we can stop it. We know where that ends. We know how that story ends. But the ending of our story has not yet been written. And there's still time to change and to follow the ways of God.